it's a beautiful day. I come home from this little office space that I was at. I didn't know how to do all the big boy business shit that I actually had to do at that time. So everything was overwhelming. Like this was a mountain that I knew I couldn't climb. All of suicide is looking for relief. I just needed to stop. We live in a world that's kind of crazy right now. Are you adding more to the system than taking from it? I wasn't willing to tell myself that I didn't believe in myself enough to make it work. Come to Austin, just do cool stuff. That's the cover charge. What's up, everyone? This is Nick Shank, the host of the Cover Charge podcast. I'm here with Scott McElroy, my good friend, executive coach. Mm. Thanks, Scott, for joining. What's going on, Nick? How you doing? Doing pretty well, man. Doing pretty well. So Scott and I, we know each other from the Rosedale neighborhood in Austin. We are neighbors, um, and we run into each other quite a bit at the park. Our kids go to school together, and... I'd say we met for the first time three years ago, I would say, yep. maybe three, four years ago, and just kind of running into each other at the park, but never kind of developed a, you know, a close friendship or anything. But over the years, I've gotten to know you better, and I found out that you have an entrepreneurial background, and mm-hmm. that you are now an executive coach, mm-hmm. life coach, and from your past experiences that I learned about you... I thought it was really interesting how you, the path that you've been on to get to where you're at now. Yep. And I wanted to bring you on because you're really open about your story. Yep. Um, and you, you're doing what you're doing because it's coming from a good place. Like yep. you generally want to help other people and use the adversity that you faced to help other people. Yep. So let's get into that. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is when, when you said you talked to me about where you grew up and you said you were adopted, but you didn't describe it that way. You said I was relinquished yep. and I'd never heard that before. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, for me, that was this thing that comes, um, as you know, with awareness, right? Because as, as kids, when we're younger, uh, we're given the language that we use to talk about ourselves, right? Um, if you were separated at birth and relinquished and, and sold in a financial transaction, you're told that you were adopted. Um, and then you're told a bunch of other things along with that, like, be grateful, like you were saved, you're the lucky one, et cetera. Um, which for anybody that's ever been separated from their biological family at birth, that's not really the feeling, right? That's not the experience. Um, of course, there is gratitude, there is love, there is all that. And I experienced a lot of that. But the bulk of the experience is feeling uh, thrown away. Uh, especially for me, it was very much feeling relinquished. Um, and especially as I got older, right? Like, realizing like, oh, like I have this new awareness about myself and and my experiences, I actually get to choose the language that I use to describe myself and describe my life. I don't have to continue to, you know, use the language that was given to me, um, which is extremely powerful because like the language that we use, especially the thoughts that we have about ourselves um, are ultimately what determine our identities, right? Like if you're this way, you're skinny. If you're this way, you're fat. If you're this way, you're, you're good or you're this way, you're bad. Um, And obviously none of that shit's objectively true. That's just the language that we've been given to describe ourselves. And yet with that language, we begin to, you know, develop our self-identity, who we are, how the world around us works. Um, So for me, being separated at birth, um, being a massive part of my story, you know, that was definitely this extremely traumatic event um, that really shaped my life in a lot of different ways. Some that I really wouldn't 
you know, really learn about and, and accept until, you know, until my business failed. Until, yeah, like my family was kind of falling apart. My personal life was kind of falling apart. And then realizing like, oh, okay, this is here. So as that awareness developed, really taking ownership. Like, oh, no, no, my experience is this. I'm going to use this language around it because that's authentic to me. And on your website, though, you even you even take it a little further. You said, you know, I was sold for yep. $6,500, yeah. which is, you know, kind of harsh language. Sure. Have you gotten, has, has there been any pushback from people who are like, dude, what you, you were adopted, you should be more grateful. You shouldn't describe it this sure. way. And what's your response to that? Sure. Um, yeah, there's definitely pushback. I mean, of course there's pushback. Um, not so much from like my biological or adoptive families. There's some for sure. Um, but just as a whole, what, what's familiar and what we're given is what, uh, you know, there's this identity as, as a society that, Hey, stick to the plan, you know, like play your part. You know, if you're adopted, you're adopted. You know, that's the word that we use to describe this experience. Um, and anytime you start to bring change to that internally and externally, there's resistance, you know, so there's definitely this pushback of like, you know, you're being dramatic or yeah, like be grateful or et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, like there's some, you know, there's a reaction to that. There's some pain in that of like, oh, you're just continuing to invalidate or dismiss my experience with the words that I choose to use about it, which I have the right to do. I'm a, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a man, you're a man, like, right. Like I get to choose how I describe myself. Um, so th there's always going to be that resistance, but you know, for me, knowing that my authenticity is my truth, this is, this was my experience. This is how I feel, you know, and these, like those feelings led to beliefs that led to thoughts, which led to experiences that sh really shaped my life and that of my family. So it's like, no, like you can, you can feel a way about it the way that you feel about it. But for me, it's this way. And just accepting that, like it's, it's kind of healing. Yeah. It's, it's certainly healing. So you were born, <clears throat> excuse me, you were born in Amarillo mm -hmm. and then you grew up in East Texas. Yep. Um, Shout out Lufkin, Texas. Lufkin, Texas. Yep. And you, when you were growing up in Lufkin, you're close with your adoptive mother mm -hmm. and then she got cancer and mm -hmm. passed away. What was that experience like? And what was it like after that? Yeah, that was the beginning of my real awareness of myself because yes, my, my adoptive mom and I were extremely close, right? That's my mom, right? Like, and you know, using kind of the adoptive mom or this kind of secondary labeling language was something that didn't start until way later. Um, and then so when she got cancer and then, you know, got sick and, you know, she died, you know, my entire life blew up. You know, I'm 15 years old. I'm a sophomore in high school. Um, your mom dies. There's, you know, your whole your whole attachment system is shaken, you know, which as an individual, as a child means that your survival is more at risk. Um, and so that was a really tough experience, obviously, to just go through as, as a kid. Um, I wasn't I mean, I, I loved my adopted dad. He was cool. He, you know, he gave me a lot of like cool things that he did, but he and I really weren't that close, especially we weren't as close as, as he and my older brother are. Um, and, and then really what happened was, um, my, my adoptive father, you know, really began to disassociate from the experience. Um, he was obviously devastated losing his wife. Um, now he's left with a, a 15 year old and a 16 year old, two adoptive kids. You know, we're going through our adolescent experience, which for most you know, separated or relinquished or adopted kids is the time where you really start to see the true feelings. You really start to see these, this real behavior. And as a whole, he, he like 
you know, basically just continued to disassociate and eventually just abandoned us altogether where he was very emotionally not present. Um, and then was just very physically not present where he was, you know, um, looking for a new partner, started dating this woman in Houston, about two hours North of Lufkin and was just gone. Um, and then through that experience, you know, I was kind of like, I was like, fuck this. Like, this Mm -hmm. is, you know, what's, what's going on. Right. There was, there was pain and sadness beneath that, but there was also this anger of like, you know, fuck this. And, you know, I ended up moving out of the house when I was 17, packed a bag, moved in with my best friend at the time, Matt Gandy, Matt, I love you. Um, and then really, yeah, continued to bounce around from friend's house to friend's house. Um, which was, you know, and again, that was this, you know, because looking back now, I know that was this experience that really brought up a lot of these deeply unconscious experience, you know, feelings for me. Mm-hmm. Because as a baby, my whole life, I've known that I was relinquished. You know, I knew that that initial trauma was there deep in my body, but consciously it was never top of mind. And then as, you know, the, the experience grew of like losing my mom and then really losing my dad, you know, that sense, especially from my father, that sense of abandonment came more and more to the surface. And, you know, more and more my behavior was, it was just erratic. And you talked about like the archetypes of yep. kids who are adopted. Yep. Talk about, explain that for a second, because I'd, I'd never heard of that before. Yeah. Um, so for, yeah, like adoptive kids, um, there, there's generally two archetypes that you're going to have in an adoptive family. One um, is going to be a very compliant kid, very um going to get good grades, going to be a popular, going to, going to do whatever he has to do to please you to be accepted. Um, that way you, that, that way you don't leave that way. Another abandonment isn't going to come, right? That's an offense against abandonment. And that was me. You know, I was, um, very compliant, you know, super sweet, you know, beautiful kid, but like really developing this false self of I'll do whatever I need to do. So you don't abandon me, you know, new mom and dad, friends at school, you know, it's very popular captain of the basketball team, homecoming king, I think. Um, and the other archetype is one that's going to prove to you that you're going to abandon them already, right? Like their defense against a future abandonment is to just push you the fuck away as far as possible with their behavior that shows that you're not worth keeping. Uh, and that was really my older brother. And growing up, he was just very demonstrative, um, could just really kind of like, especially with my mom was always, um, mad at her, always acting out really. And and then, you know, and what happens is you get labeled as a bad kid. You get labeled as that kid. And I got labeled as a good kid. And then kind of, you know, your, even your adoptive parents will begin to treat you that way. Um, even though both of us are having the exact same internal experience, which is one of deep trauma and deep abandonment and deep fear of rejection, um, and, and yet, yeah, a relinquished or adoptive kid will just deal with that in typically one or two ways. But especially if you have two adopted children in the same house, those archetypes are extremely commonly present. Like yeah. One kid is going to take down the other. But you, I mean, despite the things you went through in high school, like you said, you were captain of the basketball team and you went to UT. Yep. Great school. Yep. You were super involved at UT, mm-hmm. but you were still carrying all this stuff. And you're one thing that impressed me about you is you're very um, open and transparent about going to seek help and seeing a therapist while yep. you were in college. Um, I still feel like for guys, there's there's a stigma attached to that. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I've seen a therapist. It's, it was super helpful to me just to clarify some what decisions I needed to make in my life yep. um, professionally. And um, yeah, you. Talk about, you know, what path led you 
to seeing a therapist and what that's done for you. Yeah. Um, even thank you for sharing that. Because again, it's like the, the stigma around men seeking healing and seeking help is it's very present. It's, you know, maybe not as strong and present as it has been in the past, where our fathers were probably. Um, well, but, my dad's a psychiatrist, so yeah. it's a little, little different oh, well, in my family. <laughs> yeah, but that's got its own like unique thing too. Yeah. Um, but for me, yeah, I was 19 when I first went to a therapist um, in Austin with the D. Betty Psychotherapy. Met with Charlotte Howard and Tori Olds. Um, and they're wizards, um, just, you know, really were able to give me exactly what I needed in that, in that time. Uh, and still do to this day, they're a large part of my like continued support. Um, but basically I was just destroying myself. You know, I was like really self-sabotaging my entire life where I was in a relationship with a beautiful girl who I was in love with. Um, and I was cheating on her I was pushing her away. I was, you know, I had great friends. And I had this one experience where I, you know, basically had this kind of hookup with one of my best friend's girlfriend at the time. And, and they were, you know, I was I was fucking everything up, like big time. You know, I'm like, I like to think that I'm, you know, I, I don't like to think I, I'm very smart. And I have awareness of if I you know put my mind to something, I'm going to be great at it. My grades were terrible. You know, all these organizations that I'd worked so hard to like become a part of you know, I I would be accepted and get into these things like these very competitive things. And then I would just like fuck off, you know, then I would completely just sabotage those experiences. And eventually you do that long enough and your pain threshold gets high enough and you, you start to realize like, Oh wow. Like now I'm in a, you know, a fiery pit of hell. Like, and, and there's nobody around me because I've pushed everybody away and I need help. You know, where do I go? What do I do? Um, How did, how did you go from like, high school people pleaser to going to college and it totally turned. Yeah. And that, that's really just part of the progression, right? Like, because that people pleasing is just a false self, right? Like that's a mask that we all put on in different ways to, yeah, either not be abandoned or not be rejected, um, or to be accepted. Um, and we can all relate to that, right? Like my details are a little bit on the extreme side, so to speak, you know, relatively really. Um, but like that was all this false self and that false self is unsustainable. It just takes too much effort to continue to lie to yourself. Right. It just takes too much effort to like continue to put on the mask and put on the front to be in the fraternity or to get the girl or to be liked by your friends or to be cool or whatever. Um, and, you know, as that unhealed trauma, as that unhealed pain, like continues throughout time, like your, your behavior begins to shift, you know, but you begin to project more. Right. Like things that you used to be able to like suppress and push down and like mask and hide to where nobody would know soon become like more out in the open. You know, soon you start like your language is different. You're, you're right. Like you're, everything you do starts to really change. And and so that was that demonstrative period for me of like just being so, you know, we talked about this last time of just like you're getting your ass kicked in the dark. You know, you're getting your you're getting your ass kicked in the dark. You don't know what's going on. And eventually you just find yourself like, oh, like, where's the light? Like, I, you know, desperately crawling for the light. Um, you know, and then like, and, and for me at that time, that was like, that was, you know, I reached out to, you know, Jenna, my girlfriend at the time, now my, now my, you know, beautiful partner and wife. Um, and was like, because I knew she had gone to therapy. She was much more mature and aware than I was at the time. Thank God she was too. Um, and then she had a recommendation for the therapist that I went to see. And then that was the beginning of, 
yeah, that was really the, maybe not the full beginning of the healing experience, but the conscious healing experience of like, I need help. Yep. This isn't working. And you and Jenna, you weren't necessarily together at the time. You were still talking, mm-hmm. but then you got, you and Jenna got pregnant at 21. Mm-hmm. Yep. With your son. Yep. And that, that was a pivotal moment. How, what was your reaction to that? And how did people around you react to that? Yeah. Um, well, for me, the moment that, yeah, we were, we, were, we were not together at the time. You know, we'd been together for most of our lives, you know, from high school, um, middle school, high school, and then in college. But at this particular time, she, you know, she was finally like, this is not good for me. You're toxic as hell. You know, like, get away from me. Um, and then we had slowly started to come back together you know, enough to get pregnant. Um, and yet as a child that was relinquished as an adopted child there, and this is a common experience for adoptees as well. Like I was ecstatic, you know, because I'm about to meet somebody that has my blood, you know, this, this, you know, unborn kid, you know, my soon to be unborn kid is like the first person that I'll ever know that has this like biological connection with me. That was like the first split second. You know, and, 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 you know, and, and also like, I knew deep down that I loved this woman. I knew it. You know, I, I didn't like deep, deep, deep. It was super deep. <laughs> like, uh, because on the surface, like I could really rationalize like this doesn't work, get away, like love equals pain, connection equals pain. Um, so yeah, in this like split second, I remember sitting on her bed over in Hyde Park and being like, yes. You know, like really having this like celebration moment, even though we were we were 21 seniors in college, you know, had no idea of what was going to come next and really no way of like really being like aware of what that situation is at all. But immediately there was the celebration for me and then kind of the mind took over and we very quickly rationalized like having an abortion. Right. Like we're too young. We're not even together. This doesn't make sense. Um and which is again like an extremely common experience right like um and so like from there i remember we drove we were in austin we drove to san marcus and back just trying to like process like what the fuck like oh my god you know not us like this can't happen to us you know this is you read about this it doesn't happen to you and yeah for like three weeks we were kind of just like holding on to that secret and we're very much taking steps to not have a baby. And it was in an abortion clinic in Austin where we had actually just gone through this whole process. And we were kind of at the end of that process, like, OK, let's go. You know, and I was there with her and, and we were certainly there together. Um, and it was in that moment that we were both just kind of like, what the fuck are we doing here? Mm-hmm. You know, like where slightly the, this, the, 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 the truest, the true selves of us. We're just like able to like have a moment, be like, what are we doing here? You know, like, I love you. You love me. Who gives a shit about what we're supposed to be doing? Or like, you know, we're too young or what? Like, again, coming back to the language of like being told who you are and what life is and how it works. Like you get pregnant at 21, you have an abortion. Or that was certainly the world that like we lived in. Most people, though, who were adopted at birth, I imagine, excuse me, I imagine that the idea of having an abortion would seem really like nothing they would ever consider. Yeah. Did you connect those thoughts at all or not? Not much, actually. It's actually really interesting that you bring that up. Um, 
because undoubtedly that was this very unspoken urge in me that like, this is not right. This is not, and, and not like not right for me, right? Like people's decisions are right for them often. But for, for me, that was, that wasn't what I wanted. And that wasn't what, what Jenna wanted. Um, and yeah, really in that moment, it was this pivotal moment that I will never forget. You know, this one of the beautiful scenes in my movie mm-hmm. where we're just in this like kind of jank ass like waiting room, really in this traumatic space for months, really. And then <clears throat> kind of just coming together to be like, let's let's get out of here. And that being the time of like, you know, what, I don't know how the hell we're going to do this, but I'm going to commit to you and you're going to c- commit to me. And I know there's a bunch of pain in between here and where we want to go. But like, I'll, I'll sign up for that shit. Yep. You know, like, and then, yeah, then a year, you know, a year later, you know, we had to basically graduate, accelerate, like, you know, Jenna was a Kyo at UT. I was a Kappa Sig. I was a Texas cowboy. You know, we had to really wade through all of this social experience of we're 21, um, pregnant, and, you know, we're about to graduate college before, like ahead of time and then have our son. Yep. Christian Sawyer. He's a beautiful kid. He is. Thank you. Um, I applaud the fact that you sort of, you not only did you make that decision, but you were able to get your career on, on mm-hmm. the fast track. Yep. Got a job at Robert Half. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're doing really well for yourself. Yep. Making good money in Houston. Yep. Um, but then you made the decision, a very risky decision yes. to start a business. Yes. In a situation like that, where you're trying to support a young family, Making a big risk like that is, you know, doesn't seem logical. Yes. But you did it. Why did you do it? And explain how that went. Yeah. You know, looking back now, this is, is honestly a clear example of my, my self-sabotaging nature, you know, because I was in a great spot. I was in a great spot. I was making more money than I ever thought I'd be making at 23. I had married the woman of my dreams. We had a beautiful child. We were set up in Rice Village in Houston, which was gorgeous. Um, and you know, I, I knew that I wanted more, right. I could see in my life, like, you know, I don't want to do this forever. I could, you know, I could make half a million dollars a year and be great, but like, is this what I want? This is what I want to get out of life. Um, but like, as a, like, like, but you can build up to that, right? Like you can, you know, get, you know, put some bread away, you know, like learn, learn more, learn a lot more and, and then step out. So like as a whole, looking back now, it's like that was generally this opportunity. Like that was this example of self-sabotage, which like is a, as you know, again, like now being you know, about to turn 30, this consistent theme in my life of, OK, I can make money. I, I can make bread like I'm, I'm capable. I'm good. And yet I will lose it. I also know how to lose that shit. If it's coming to me. Oh, fuck. Like, let me let me not enjoy it or have it or like secure myself or be comfortable too long because you know, eventually it's going to run out and eventually the whole world's going to blow up much like my world blew up both like when I was 15 and like when my world blew up when I was born. Right. Um, so like rather than wait till that happens, cause it's definitely going to happen cause that's how life works there. That was certainly the subconscious beliefs that I had. Let me just like sabotage it. Right. In these very unconscious, unspoken, completely unaware ways, um, which we can also like typically find evidence like, Oh, this is a good idea. The brain will justify like, Scott, like you're as smart as anybody. You know how to work hard. You start a business, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg's this, you know, this guy's this, like you're as good as they are. Um, and sure, like I believe those things, but 
at the same time, like, you know, looking back now, it's like, yeah, like I love the gumption I had. I love the confidence, you know, but it's like, we could be a little smarter, you know? And then like when money comes and things come that I want, it's okay to receive them before like the moment that they're in the door, be like, okay, like, fuck, let's go. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's leave this great job with a bunch of people I love and a great situation where I'm making tons of money. Um, and, and, you know, move my, move my whole family. We, we broke our lease in Houston. We moved back to Lufkin. Jenna and Christian lived with, you know, her, her family for the next really like three months. And I went to Los Angeles and basically started the entertainment helping company, which eventually became a company called everybody helping. Um, and really it was my goal to build like the mobile donation platform. Um, like there's a, there's classy and there's, you know, GoFundMe and a handful of like those companies in a, in a market that has done nothing but skyrocket right like i and really the vision was at the time of like jj watt giving 30 million dollars to hurricane harvey but doing that through my platform and this was really that was back in 2011 mm -hmm. yeah or 2013 um so i knew this market opportunity was there but like basically just jumping in the way that i did it was truly this just like perfect example of self-sabotage what was the hardest lesson you learned Hardest lesson I learned. Great question, because there's several. Um, hmm. Um, I think the hardest lesson I learned was that I'm already good enough, right? Um, because e even looking back, like, you know, I was, I was, I was really just trying to prove to myself and everybody around me that I was that I was worth keeping, you know, that I was good enough, that I was smart enough, that like the way that my father had abandoned me or the way that my bios had abandoned me that like, you know, they fucked up, you know, like you're going to learn. Like I'm going to, you know, and again, that was very subconscious. Um, at the time really had no awareness about that, but like, you know, because uh, inevitably what happened when my intention, like for that business was what it was, which was again, really to just show people how, how valuable and cool and smart I am. I'm going to watch, I'm going to build this cool thing and be super rich. Um, it inevitably failed. And in that failure, I like eventually became suicidal. I was because I had put all of my worth and all of my validation in these external things, whether these certain people or like these certain accolades or groups or like money um, that whenever it wasn't there, you know, I was phew, I had nothing left to fall back on. Yeah. Previously, you talked about returning from L.A. to Lufkin mm -hmm. and feeling like a failure because mm -hmm. you didn't you know, get the traction in LA that you had thought. And, you know, we talked about tell, people telling themselves stories and in your yeah. head, you're like, Oh, I'm going back to Lufkin and everyone's going to be like, yeah, Scott came back and he failed in LA. Yeah. When in fact, probably people are like, Oh, it's good to see Scott again. Exactly. And like, Oh, maybe his business didn't work out, but I'm sure he'll do fine the next thing. Exactly. And, uh, you know, everyone tells themselves stories internally. Um, I'm, I do it all the time. Yep. How, you know, at the time it was hard for you to separate the stories you were telling yourself from reality. Right. And like, Oh, big time. W talk about the tailspin that ensued. Yeah. Um, no, and that's such a great point. Like, you know, just like the nature of the brain, we learn everything in stories, right? Like that's, so me going to LA, like this is the hero's journey. I'm going on the, I'm going to go slay the dragon and I'm going to be the hero. And then when you, the dragon eats your ass for breakfast and like spits you back out, you know, to your small hometown, um, you're, you're trash, you failed. 
Um, when at like, you know, and, and those were the stories that I was telling myself, you know, and, it, and again, it's a slippery, slippery slope. So slippery starts with one statement, one question, one thought. And that, that tailspin, um, will, you know, again, like grew and grew and grew over, over years. Right. Like this was like from 2013 to really 2016, I was, you know, I was full blown suicidal, um, had a suicidal episode. Um, and you know, it's, it just, you go from being like, oh yeah, like I'm great. Like I have all this confidence in myself to like be as smart and successful as anyone to that was all lies. You know, like I'm, I thought I was, but I'm not, you know, like, oh, look at this, this happened. And then, and then we have this emotional experience of feeling less than a feeling bad. And then the brain goes and finds all the evidence of why that's true. You know, your business failed, you lost this money. Like, you, you know, you fucked up this relationship, you fucked up this meeting, you, you know, your product wasn't right. You don't know shit about software. Like you hired bad developers, you hired, you know, you didn't know who to hire. You didn't know what to do. And then, you know, that starts to compound. Oof, it compounds hard and it compounds fast. When, when you talked about the suicidal episode, yeah. you, you, when you were on the brink, yeah, what pulled you back and, um, talk about what that was like and, you know, in previous conversations, you've explained it really vividly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, you know, and it's interesting to think about now um, being, yeah, about three years removed from it because, yeah, the brink was really a couple streets from where we are now, um, where, you know, I knew I was I was I was I was about to lose one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Right. Like and, and I didn't really have I didn't have money like that. You know, this was this money had kind of come to me. I'd inherited it when my grandmother passed. And, you know, knew that this was just the perfect jump off for me to go from, you know, 150K to like, you know, 1 million and then 1 million to 10 and 10 to 100, et cetera. Um, and then my whole life was, was that, you know, so, so when this went, oh, like not only is that not happening, but like I kind of just fucked over my whole family's like financial like future to a certain degree, especially in the immediate, you know, that tailspin that, that, you know, I was equally as worthless as I would have been valuable had it gone successful. Right. Um, and, you know, being in Rosedale in Austin, Texas, truly one of the premier neighborhoods in all of the world. Right. Like, I mean, as far as Austin's always number one place to live on all these like polls and lists, Rosedale is, is as cool as any place to live within the city. I live in this neighborhood for six years, live in a beautiful house that I really can't afford. But like my life is beautiful. It's fantastic. I've got two beautiful children. I've got a like smoking hot wife, like we, I have money. I still have like bread in the bank. Like I'm good. And yet these stories had been compounding for a couple of years now to where I felt just like I didn't deserve to live. You know, like I felt like everybody around me is going to be better off when I'm dead to not have to hold such a needy person to not like have to be around such helpless energy to like, you know, not have to exist around such like false confidence and, you know, et cetera. Like, you know, the, the thoughts were mean, you know, like, I mean, because again, it's like, you know, I can't even think about killing somebody else. That just doesn't make much sense. Right. Like, and of course we can play that game of like, you know, if they're coming at me, like whatever, probably in that situation, but like as a whole, like, I don't want to be mean to you. Right. And that's how most of us are. But like to ourselves, whew, you know, like I was, I was, you know, about to kill myself, you know, just like beating yourself up constantly, the shit out of myself, you know, just like telling myself all of these lies because I'd been abandoned at birth. I'd been abandoned like at 15, really in my most vulnerable moment. My mom had just died. 
I had, I like at this point, I had also like reunited with my biological mother at this time. I was really experiencing what's known as a second abandonment in that relationship, which is extremely common, but very, very painful. My business was failing. So I was kind of in this like perfect little hurricane for like Scott McRoy to feel the way that I was feeling. And at this, in, during this time, are you like cutting off communication with Jenna so she doesn't really have an idea of all like the depths of despair? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's extremely intuitive, extremely perceptive. So she knew that something was super fucked. But she, like, you know, the, the day that this episode started, you know, the day that the episode was like, it's a beautiful day. I come home from this little office space that I was at, you know, really was just so I didn't know how to do all the big boy business shit that I actually had to do at that time. So everything was overwhelming. Like this was a mountain that I knew I couldn't climb. So, you know, and this is all of suicide is looking for relief. I just needed to stop. You know, I need this like internal ass whooping, this internal abuse to just stop, you know, like to the point where we value that relief over everything else in our lives our relationships, our kids, our wife, et cetera. Um, so I remember coming home, getting out of the car, walking in, and then just looking around, like in, in this beautiful house, you know, seeing Christian, seeing my son Hendrix, you know, seeing Jenna, and just like, I didn't deserve it. You know, not only that I didn't deserve it, like I was holding them back. I was this big suck, this big drain on their beautiful life. They'll be great. You know, she'll meet another great man who's way better than me. Take care of them. You know, the brain will rationalize every detail, all of it. And so I remember walking out of the house. I kissed Christian on the head and got in my car. I knew there was this like nine millimeter in the car. And I was just like, I grabbed a towel and I was just going to like put, you know, lean my head against this towel against the window, drive to a little spot just over here in Ramsey and, and then shoot myself in the head. Um... And I remember sitting there for like an hour or so and really just like contemplating, like if I open the glove box where I knew the gun was and I knew it was loaded, then I'm going to do it. Like, and just like staring at like the opening to this glove box of like, you know, you can do it, you can do it, you know, and just like all the while, like telling, you know, just all the while, like up to the very like end, really like just treat myself like shit, you know. And it was in this moment that really this just like micro thought of like this image of my mom who raised me being like, baby, I don't want you to do that, you know? And then that like sparking this other like thought of like I'm Jenna being like, yeah, baby, I don't want you to do that, you know? And then thinking about like my boy Ryan and, you know, my, my friend Matt Candy and, think, you know, really sourcing it. And what this is, is the brain resourcing itself. You know, even in these micro, micro ways. And as soon as there was just that glimmer of hope and like me believing that like that is true. I believe that my mom doesn't want me to do this. I believe that Jenna doesn't want me to do this. I believe that Ryan doesn't want me to do this. Even though I like in my like internally, I had already rationalized that it was the best decision to do. Like I had, you know, I had gone from I was I was planning, you know, I already made a plan to do it. Like I'm taking multiple, multiple steps. Because I believe that this is the thing to do, which just hurt myself in the ultimate way. And the moment that there was that glimmer of light, I just remember like being like, you know, taking a deep breath, like, fuck. And, you know, throwing my car in gear and then just like kind of racing back home. And, you know, I like ran upstairs and 
shed all of my clothes, you know, and it really like I, I remember this very vividly. Um, and like in the shedding of my clothes, really feeling like I was shedding a skin, you know, like just like, you know, just like and then I got in the bath and then I laid in the bath for like an hour, which like, you know, for me, again, is the brain resourcing itself because like the bath was always just like very comfortable space for me. Um, and then just laying there. And then my son Christian came up and, you know, and as a parent, this is very real because there's days when you're a parent or you're a business owner or whatever, and you feel like shit, you might be depressed. You might be super anxious. You might, you might need something. And yet you've got your kids saying, I need you. I need you. I need you. Which is like, can sometimes be extremely overwhelming. So this is like, I'm five minutes, you know, post almost killing myself altogether. Christian has no idea. He comes upstairs and he's like, daddy, are you okay? And I'm like, no, son, I'm not okay. He's like, daddy, are you sick? I'm like, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm sick. I'm really, really sick. And he's like, okay, well, hurry up and feel better because I want to go outside and play. And I just remember being like slapped in the face with that. <laughs> and, and then that being this like, yeah, okay, well, like Christian, I want Christian to, I want Christian to play. You know, I may feel like shit, but like he deserves to like go play, you know? And then like really mustering like all of my emotional energy to like just get out of bath, throw on some new clothes and then walk him up to the park. You know, and that being this like, you know, the very beginning of, of generally what's been like a, you know, significant journey to being able to even talk about it this way. Yeah. You know, what, what else do you attribute to like your comeback? Um, I've seen, I've been driving in the neighborhood in the morning um, after dropping the girls off and I see you getting in a good sweat at the park. Yeah. Imagine, you know, you're a real athletic guy. Is, has exercise really helped you oh, as well? of course. Yeah, of course. The biggest thing is just realizing like what was happening. Like, oh, I'm judging myself based on all of these other people's actions. I don't control them. So like in a whole, like I've relinquished all of my responsibility, all of my power to outside forces, to humans. You can do the dumbest shit on earth. You know, and 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 part you know, and part of that was what I'd experienced. Like you abandoned, you know. You abandon somebody when they're 15 and they're super vulnerable, like that's a dumbass human thing to do. You know, like really you relinquished your baby because like you're afraid that the church is going to like, you know, disown you or some shit in like Oklahoma. Like that's some dumbass shit to do, you know, especially knowing like how painful that is because everybody involved is, is in, in immense trauma for life. Me, my biological mom, the adoptive parents, like every, everybody. So like really establishing this moment and this was the exact language I remember using it like the next day after that episode was like, man, like I fuck with myself. Like I like me, you know, like I like, I took a shot and missed, you know, I like, you know, uh, struck the fuck out. You know, I struck out, like I started a company, I had money, I did some dumb ass shit that like people will do if you're young with no sweat equity, but with more money. And that's what happened. And, you know, like, and like, and that's okay. Right. Like the company that I wanted to start would have been super, super cool. Like it would have been super, super valuable, too. And me, who I like, I realized that I was trying to create the like the, the, the true self in me that was trying to come out was just constantly being reinforced and rejected. You know, like you're bad. You're worthless. I'm going to leave you. My actions are going to show you the way that like I feel about you. And then like unless you have awareness about yourself, you're going to internalize that. And then you're going to treat yourself that way. 
yep. you know, down to the language we use, which is, again, coming back to like, I don't feel like I was adopted. I feel like I was thrown away. I feel like I was sold and relinquished. So actually, I'm going to say it that way. Because for me, that gives me a little bit of agency in the situation where I had no agency. You know, I'm just, I'm getting transacted like a commodity, a literal commodity. Um, so that was this big thing of first just accepting like, oh, like, what if I judge myself like the way that I feel about myself? You know, what if I acknowledge like, oh, it's okay. You know, like, I don't need to die. You know, like, it's not like I see somebody else like failing, like, you know, starting a company and I'm like, fuck them, they should die. Right. Like, that's not something anybody does. We never would do that because that sounds dumb. Right. That's ridiculous. But internally, that was exactly what I was doing to me. Um, and, and so like that, like shifting my like, you know, taking back my power and shifting the belief of like, I'm valuable because I'm valuable because I say so is is what actual value is. Like, yeah. that's what that that's what actual like love is. And then like, you know, from that place, getting to a place of like, OK, like exercise is good for me. Water is good for me. You know, talking about it is good for me. You know, these relationships are good for me. These relationships are bad for me. I'm, fuck them. I'm letting them go. You know, all of these behaviors and these distractions that are bad for me, like I got to name them. I got to like label them. I got to identify them and then let them go. Otherwise, I'm giving them power for my life, which like that's dumb. You know, like even though that's how we're conditioned to be, you know, once you have that awareness, once the light is on, so to speak, like you're not getting your ass kicked in the dark. You like, oh, there's the light. The light came on. Thank God. You know, like I can see how kind of ridiculous this was, you know, and then and then being like, oh, OK, well, since the light is on. Now I can exactly like I can know that like I need to get up and I need to work out. You know, I need to sweat. Right? I need to get my body at a place where like that morning anxiety is like I just beat it, beat it out of my body. You know, I don't beat it, you know, but like I, I let it go, you know. And then from there, just like establishing like what's my favorite day? What do I want every day to be like? Write that out, plan it out and then do that. Right. When did when did your mindset sh mindset uh, shift to becoming a therapist um once i started like <laughs> telling myself that therapy isn't this bad thing right like because that was the connotation that i had of like oh like i'm in therapy that means i'm broken you know i'm in therapy because i've been traumatized in ways that most people can't relate to and i need to hide that part about myself i need to shame that part about myself this this being an entrepreneur being a rich businessman this is this part of myself that i was like really putting forward and there's genuine, like, that's a genuine part of me. Like, I, I want to build cool shit, you know, like, you know, I don't, I'm not just like super pro capitalist, but like, there's good things that come from it, you know, like building cool companies and cool products and services change lives really do. And solving puzzles and like, is fun. Like I, like, I enjoy that. So, you know, accepting this therapy, like accepting therapy, not shaming that part. I was like, you know what? Like, I'm going to be a therapist. This was something that has been a major positive in my life. Let's just go do that. So, you know, that was really the next move for me. It was also very safe as opposed to like, you know, being an entrepreneur, starting your own business. Um, you know, it was kind of like being a dentist. Like there's always going to be a job for a dentist. There's always going to be a like, you know, therapies, you know, I'm going to have clients. I'll be okay. Um, and then it was in therapy school, getting my master's where I was like, damn, like I'm taking out more student loans. They're telling me about shit that I already know because I've, I've lived this at this point, you know, like um, and and I want to help people now. And I need money right now. <laughs> right. Also, like, you know, like my wife was the breadwinner and, you know, throughout this whole experience of me, like 
starting a business that failed, she started a very successful business right there next to me, like in the same house, you know? And so like realizing like, oh, like she can do that. She tells me that I can do it too. She trusts me. She's validating me. Like, you know, what if I, what if I married these two things? You know, what if I didn't have to be a therapist? What if, what if there's a way for me to really do therapy and serve people that way, but also help them cool, like build cool companies? You know, what would that be like? Yep. And quick shout out to Jenna McElroy. Mm. She's a really talented photographer. Mm. She did our family photos mm. for the holidays. Um, she's so good. Yeah, she's great. So just had to do a quick plug I love you, baby. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about, not, not necessarily the elephant in the room, but the obvious thing is, you know, I get hit up by executive coaches, yeah. life coaches all the time. Um, it's as soon as, you know, I updated my LinkedIn profile to to say that, you know, I was starting third Lamar, seemed like a lot of people came out of the woodwork. Yeah. And um there there is a stigma attached to that. Um you talked previously in the discussions we had that um your psychologist or therapist had mentioned, hey, maybe you should be yeah. an executive coach or life coach. What was your reaction to that? Oh, I had the same reaction that everybody does. Or the same reaction <laughs> You know, you and I was like, fuck that. I was like, what is that? You know, that's not a real thing. You know, like that just means that you don't have a job. You know, that just means that you meet at, you know, at coffee with people and you talk about shit because, you know, it didn't work out in corporate or something like that. So I immediately was like very resistant to like, you know, uh, yeah, like I'm going to be a life coach. I just that didn't sound congruent, um, mostly because like I didn't understand it and there was there there was the stigma associated with it with like oh that's not cool you know like that's that's not a real thing um and then the more it continued to just become more and more present in my life where i you know i like started paying attention to some of like some of some known coaches like this guy brendan bouchard especially was very influential for me um i met my own business coach um julian rosen um and then my wife started working with a business coach darcy benicosa who really changed her life and, and, and thus by like osmosis changed my life um, as just someone who has thorough knowledge of the brain, of the body, of the human experience. And it's really right there with me of like, yeah, like now let's take this awareness and apply it to whatever you want to apply it to. Right. You want to build a cool company like let's you know, let's put the structure to it and go do that. Give me a sense of like a couple of exercises that you go through with clients of yours. Um, let's think. Um, one, one of the things we do is, is we establish, you know, really a, a daily morning routine and it being like really a foundation for your whole life. Like you do these things every single morning because you're committing to yourself. Like it, like these are things that I can afford not to do. And there are often things that we tell ourselves like, oh, I don't have time for that. You know, and these generally are, um, or, or not generally specifically, like we wake up, meditate. Like meditate, exercise, get into your body, get out of your head, get into your body. Um, typically do those in the opposite order. Like I wake up and I go straight to the gym. I, I go outside, I exercise. And then once I've got my, like, you know, I get that out, you know, then, then I'll sit down and meditate. My body's moved. My mind is a lot more still, a lot more calm. You know, I'll meditate, observe silence for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. Uh, and then I plan my day. And I was never a planner, you know, never like... Okay, I need a planner. I'm going to plan every detail of my day. And we plan our day and gratitude journaling. Like in my planner right here, like every single morning, three thank yous 
thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you, Parker. Right. Like, and then I associate that gratitude with a feeling like, you know, thank you, Nick, for having me on this podcast. I feel very, you know, valued and respected, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then what that does. And, and then the fifth one is um, read, you know, let's get a book. Like, let's make sure we're constantly learning, constantly moving forward, even five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day. Um, that's on the daily. And then we do a handful of exercises, like at different points, like week two, we do a prison of paradise exercise where we basically get very, very clear about what your, you know, what your worst case scenario is, you know, which for me was like, psh, you know, I bite off more than I can chew. I get super depressed. So I get super anxious. I'm super stressed and I kill myself, you know, and then, and then we get super clear about your best case scenario, like what you want, what's a beautiful vision that you have for your life. You know, like let's start giving yourself permission to even just talk about it, to write about it. Um, you know, and that's that paradise. And then, you know, like, and really from that paradise, we really draw like, okay, well, let's start giving this shit real permission, right? Let's, let's stop telling ourselves that this is just a pipe dream and you know, this really can't happen because like the reality is, and if you look around close enough in life, like there's no rules, you know, like there's a lot of perceived rules and et cetera, et cetera. But like, you know, as a human, you really have the ability to do whatever you want. Yep. And, and we see those stories all over. Yeah. I think some of some of the things you just mentioned can help people who feel stuck. Yeah. I think professionally, that's the most common thing I hear from people and I, that I experience too is like, you just feel stuck. Like yeah. you need a paycheck. You're getting paid maybe a, a good amount of money, but it's, you're not being fulfilled yep. and you feel like, how do I get out of this situation? Um, totally. And, but in the same time, maybe you feel guilty because you're like, these are champagne problems. Sure. Like I feel guilty for even having for feeling like not grateful that I'm in this situation, but like you can't ignore it either. Um, I will say just from playing pickup basketball, being around you, you definitely are a grateful person. I mean, mm. I don't think I played that well last week in pickup ball, but after the game, you're like, man, Nick, you were balling out there. You're just very, um, I guess, generous in your compliments and just a grateful kind of person that shows yeah. gratitude and, and uh, you know, values friendships. And I think that, you know, if those are lessons that you're sharing with your clients or just friends in general, um, man, I think that's powerful because yeah. I, I, the, the people that I gravitate toward are the people who show those characteristics. And it's actually pretty rare. You it don't is. see that a lot, especially amongst men. Yep. Right. Like if I'm vulnerable and I say you did well, then like that must mean that I didn't do that well, you know, or that must mean like that, oh, you're going to take advantage of me or like, you know, you're going to fuck me over in business or like something, right? Like if I show you my cards or whatever language we use to describe those things. Um, but as a whole, like, you know, the men, one, we have this negativity bias because that's how the brain works. We focus more on our dangers and threats and the things that we're not doing as well because those are the things more likely to get us killed, right? Especially with the tiger lurking in the jungle in this primal sense. Or like in business where like, hey, if I don't get these things done, then I'm not going to have money. And then, you know, we're going to have to move, blah, 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 blah. Um, but two men, it's like, you know, not only is this negativity bias there, but then we're like so shamed, you know, like don't talk about it. Man up. Don't cry. Don't let them see you cry. Don't be a pussy. Don't be a bit. Right. Like all this like common language that we use. And even in like the, the way that we've been conditioned to be nice to one another, it's like shit talking, you know. Like, oh, blah, blah, blah. He's just shit talking, right? Like, I'm, I'm trying to connect with you and say something nice or, like, connect with you, but, like, I'm doing so in a way that's talking shit, you know, where it's like, do we have to do that? You know, like, we don't have to. 
you know, and because, because what happens is like, we normalize that and then we accept it. And then it's like, oh, like, bro gave me a compliment. Like, that feels weird. Right. Like, that's this, uh, that's a strange thing, you know, like, and, and then like we internalize that even more where like, we, we don't like, we don't celebrate our wins. I can't feel good about myself because I'm just so conditioned to really never give myself permission to feel good about myself. You know, even that example you give is like, you know, I'm t- you know, kind of tempted to just coach the shit out of you and be like, hey, like, because the truth is, it's you're, like, you're clearly not seeing yourself the way that everybody else sees you. You know, like, there's the self-image here where, like, where does that come from? Because, like, the truth is, you hooped. You know, like, you, you literally, you were the best player on the court. And we won most of our games. Um, and you were hitting a lot of tough shots. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, but, like, right? Like, isn't that, like, that's so interesting? Like, because you can go out and hoop and, like, you know, do well, perform well, like the thing that you really enjoy doing and doing it really, really well. And then like walk away being like, damn, you know, damn. Right. You like, focus on the negatives. You, it's like you, bro, you go like seven for 10 and you're like, fuck, I missed three shots, you know, like, and then you beat yourself up about it. Yep. Same thing happens in business. Same thing happens in relationships where we are just so hyper conditioned to focus on these negative things where the evidence shows that we're winning. You're winning, bro. Like we're winning. You know, but like, and, and whenever we can't accept that we're winning, whenever we're winning, guess what? That means you never get to win. Because, you know, when you lose, you're just like, oh, okay. Like and then the, you're just like living a life of self-loathing. Pretty much. Yep. Pretty much. Oh, what's it, describe a quintessential client for you. Like what is um, yeah. the typical person to work with? And uh, you only work with guys, right? Correct. Yeah. I only work with men, um, mostly because that's been my experience. You know, like where, you know, obviously I'm super passionate about my healing and my growth journey. And I really see the need where like, bro, like, you know, men are hurting, right? Like men don't have any less emotions than women. We like to like tell fables and stories like that, that women are somehow more emotional than us. But like, nah, all humans have the exact same emotional experience. And yet like, you know, men are just so conditioned to like suppress and not talk about it and push it down. You know, and that's why like, Suicide rates amongst men are, I think, like four or five times higher than that amongst women. The leading cause of death in men under 35 in the United States is suicide, right? Like, not the coronavirus, not not all the things that, like, can actually kill you in life. It's us killing ourselves. That's the leading cause of death in men under 35. Um, so, so, yeah, I love working with men. That's really my passion. That's really where that's designed. There's such a need there. Um, and for me, the quintessential client is like above all, like somebody that's ready, somebody that's like, I'm, it, what I'm doing isn't working. I need help. I want to talk to somebody, you know, like, um, because like, unless you're really at that place, like, you know, that, that means you're still unconscious to a point to where you're not aware of what's really going on and you're not, you're not coachable at that point. Right. Like, um, and for me, it's like, you know, kind of being, I, I like to think that I'm great at what I do. You know, I like to think I'm like my experience and who I am, like has led me to a point to be very, very good at what I do. Um, so I get to be a little choosy, you know, and, and like, I, you know, I, I like that. So like for me, I like working with people I like being around. They're just off top, like you're a cool dude. You know, like Appreciate that. you're right. Like <laughs> you're like, you're you like, too. like, you know, I want to be around you. Like you have an interesting like take on stuff, right? Like, so, so that somebody that's already successful, you know, which means everything that that means, like somebody that already has money, somebody that already has like proven to themselves that like they know that they're really good, 
you know, like you have accomplishments, you have like, you know, highlights that you can really look back and lean on like, oh, yeah, like I know what I know. Right. And yet, like somebody that I like being around, somebody that's already successful and yet they're they're unhappy. Yep. They're full of stress. They're full of anxiety. They've got a low self-image. They've got lots of self-doubt. And on the surface, they have it all. Beautiful wife, beautiful kids, probably run their own business. They're a leader. They're an artist. They're an athlete. Um, I recently had my first professional athlete come on board, and I'm fucking stoked about that. Um, but there's also this, like, there's this underlying pain, you know? And, and you know, it's like, you know, that's that's an ultimate tragedy where, like, you know, you're super cool. You got everything to offer. Like, you're already successful, and yet you can't see it. You know, you're not seeing yourself the way that that everybody around you, for the most part, is seeing. Um, you know, which is like that. That's who I want to work with. Yep. Right. I think that um, I've noticed that more and more in recent years about people who, on paper, they got everything, but mm-hmm. there's still something that's not right. Yeah. Kevin Love, he's a player. Oh yeah. For the Cavs, and he's been pretty open about his issues with anxiety and uh you know give a big credit to to k love absolutely he's a hall of famer great player played for the t wolves sad to see him leave bro was a double double machine yeah yeah. great stroke from three um yes but you know huge contract with the Cavs. oh hundreds hundreds of millions and uh you know has made an amazing career for himself but you know he's he suffers from anxiety yeah and um yeah, that just goes to show that, you know, people that you may think have everything figured out, great career, great life, et cetera, yep. they're not immune to the day-to-day adversities that we all face. No, not I mean, it, not at all, right? And, and yet they've checked all the boxes. Yep. Millions, fame, women, sex, relationships, whatever, you know, like, and yet that, that emotional experience is like the way that we feel is ultimately the thing, right? Like mm-hmm. success, when we say like, I'm successful or you're successful, that just describes a feeling. We just use that to describe a feeling, right? Like that's what success is. That's what true success is, is like you're happy with yourself, you're happy with your days, you're happy with your whole life. Whether you're Kevin Love or DeMar DeRozan or like any other professional athlete, you know, out there or not, like, yeah, I mean, you might've checked these boxes, but internally, you know, you, you, you feel sad, like you mm-hmm. feel anxiety, you feel stressed. And, and that's because like, just as a whole, as a society, like we've been so, especially men, we've been so uneducated and shunned and really lied to about our emotional experience. Um, you know, if anybody listening, especially my guys, like you have anxiety, that that's an indicator that there's an unmet emotional need there. That's what that means, you know? And like a little four-year-old that's kind of like nagging on your, your pant leg, like that wants to be held, like... The more we suppress that emotional need and say, like, get away from me, kid, like, you know, push him away, like, um, the more that anxiety and that stress is going to flare up, you know, because like that's the anxiety is this indicator from your body that like, hey, I need something. Right. And the moment that you give yourself permission to have your emotional experience and to be like, oh, damn, like this thing on the day that I was born or when I was five years old or when I was 10 years old or 15 years old or whatever, like it's like there's this unmet emotional need, even if it's from 30 fucking years ago, it's it doesn't go anywhere until it's healed, mm-hmm. you know. And yet the moment that you pick up that little toddler that's nagging at you and you hold them, meaning like you give yourself permission to have your feelings with like a safe dude who like, you know, or, like, or a safe person that's safe, like and damn, like you'll like that anxiety will start to release. 
Do you think that you could do exactly what you're doing in in any city, or is it, do you think there's like an openness to what you're offering in Austin that maybe wouldn't exist other places? Undoubtedly, I yeah, uh, no. We're like to your question of like I don't think you know being in every other market is going to be the Austin market as like a you know a mental health professional, right? Like. Um, especially me, like I'm, I very much view myself as a rebel practitioner. Like the only letters after my name are NMD, which is not a medical doctor, you know, um, Austin does, it's super open. It's super like tolerant. It's, you know, amongst the whole, the whole spectrum of issues, you know, Austin has consistently opened its arms to every community that like has been othered and suppressed and oppressed like over and over again. Um, I think the city's got a long way to go, like around, like there's a lot of ground we can make up in a racial sense, but like the LGBT community, um, the mental health community, um, no, I think like I I would, I certainly wouldn't want to be doing what I'm doing in another market. Mm -hmm. I'm super, super like stoked to like be here. Nice. What, where can people find more information about the services you offer talk about like the programs people can get on? Yeah. Um, so what's unique about, you know, having an executive coach like me, is, you know, we're on a retainer basis. So I, I, I'll work with you on a minimum of three month, three month basis um, and really going from there, right? Like either like going a full half year, or, you know, really just doing annual, um, especially if you're a business owner, or you're like, a, you know, 35 or 40 year old man, you know, and you have, you have a family, you have kids, like you run a business and like you carry a lot of responsibility across the board at home and at, at the office as well. It's kind of something you want to keep in your pocket at all times. Um, so for me, you can learn more at scottmalcory.co. Um, you can learn more on Instagram. I'm pretty active there at uh, Scott, S-C-O-T-T-C, McElroy. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I post, I share, you know, and, you know, for me, like, I also enjoy sharing myself, right? And, like, from my own clients, that's been a big piece of feedback that I continue to get that, like, you sharing your experience makes it, like, easier for me to share with you mm-hmm. as opposed to just like walking into a therapist's office and being like, okay, talk, yep. you know, like, it's like, bro, I don't know you. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. <laughs> Cause when I went to see my therapist, I'm just naturally kind of an inquisitive, curious person. Yeah. And there's a couple of times she was like, Hey, uh, like this isn't a two way thing. I'm asking you questions and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And I can imagine having you as an executive coach, the back and forth would be valuable because mm-hmm. you've been in a lot of different scenarios and situations, yep. had highs and lows yep. that I think make you credible when you give advice because it's, you've been there. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's like something different that you offer that you could, that I couldn't get at a therapist. Agree. Like, uh, Thank she, you. Yeah. I, I appreciate that as well. Yeah. She was like, I'm asking, we're talking about you, not me. <laughs> I yeah. Like, well, I kind of want to like, what about your experiences? Like, can I apply to mine? Sure. And maybe that's why I'm getting into the media business. And, yeah. You know, talking to other businesses, business owners, because I'm just kind of curious how people got to where they are and what, what I can learn from them and apply to what I'm doing. Exactly. Because what, what's on the surface isn't the full story. Yep. That's just the tip of the iceberg, you know, yep. and like, you know, in therapy, like there's a thin, there's a thin line between sharing parts of my experience that are valuable for my clients and some that like don't, don't relate, you know, like you got to know how to finesse that. You don't know how to do that. But for the most part, like, um, being able to be joined in that experience and to especially just be like, Oh, I'm not alone. You know, even, even this guy who like, 
you know, felt this way and like, you know, was really was was truly as down bad as down bad can be. Um, you can start to put those pieces back together. Yep. You can have major stress. You can have major anxiety. You can have, you know, major doubt. And like that, that, that shit doesn't kill you. We th- in, in, in your mind, especially if you isolate yourself and you're alone, you will begin to believe that it will kill you. But like the more that you share about it, the more you connect on it, the more you realize like, oh, this isn't this big thing. Yep. Like I can just move through this. Yep. Well, cool, man. Thanks for joining the podcast, man. This is thank uh, you. This has been an awesome discussion, and uh, I look forward to bringing you back on in the future. Mm, I appreciate it. Yes, thank you, Nick. I really appreciate it. Super excited for Third of Lamar. Um, I've got my hat here. You know, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm about to hook you up with a hat, man. I appreciate it. We live in a world that's kind of crazy right now. Are you adding more to the system than taking from it? I wasn't willing to tell myself that I didn't believe in myself enough to make it work. Come to Austin, just do cool stuff. That's the cover charge.